welcome. You're listening to the Six Degrees podcast, where we'll have candid discussions about some of the most pressing healthcare technology topics with industry thought leaders. Each episode contains powerful lessons to help you lead the digital revolution taking place in our increasingly complex healthcare ecosystem. This is episode eight, From Ethical AI Principles to Ethical Practices. I'm Kevin Baldwin, a professor and healthcare technologist. Today, AI ethicist Brandy Nanaki is here with us to discuss how to program ethics into technology and the impact, both positive and negative, of artificial intelligence on society. Brandy's founding director of the Citrus Policy Lab at UC Berkeley. She studies human rights at the intersection of law, policy, and emerging technologies, with her current work focusing on issues of fairness and accountability in AI. She's also a technology and human rights fellow at the Carr Center for Human Rights Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and served as a fellow at the Aspen Institute's Tech Policy Hub and at the World Economic Forum on the Council on the Future of the Digital Economy and Society. Brandy was recently named one of the 100 Brilliant Women in AI Ethics, and her research has been featured in many publications such as Wired, MIT Technology Review, and Fortune. She holds an MS degree in journalism and mass communication with a minor in technology and social change from Iowa State University and a PhD in mass communications from the College of Communications at Penn State. Welcome, Brandy. Thanks so much for being here today. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Kevin. So, Brandy, you are the founding director of the Citrus Policy Lab at UC Berkeley. Could you start off by telling us a little bit about the background of the Policy Lab? You know, how did it get started and, and how did you get involved? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Let me first give you just a quick overview of Citrus, the center, which is um, the hosting center of the Citrus Policy Lab. So Citrus is an acronym. It stands for the Center for IT Research in the Interest of Society. It's one of the largest organized research units within the University of California system. It's headquartered at UC Berkeley, but also operates on the campuses of UC Davis, UC Merced, and UC Santa Cruz. And our mission really is to support the development of IT solutions to society's most pressing challenges. Now, of course, in doing that, policy comes up, right? Regulation, governance, how do you do this appropriately? And so in 2018, we launched the Citrus Policy Lab to help guide the appropriate development of technology, including not only public sector governance, but also private sector governance. Great, thank you for that context. And your background in journalism, mass communication, technology, and social change must provide the perfect foundation for this type of work. How did you decide to pursue these particular fields of study and then translate them into your current work? Yeah, thanks. Um, I actually also have a graphic design degree, which has come in very handy in the work that I do because it's not only doing the research, but how do you effectively communicate that research to appropriate stakeholders? and how I got into the field of tech policy. I was working actually as a graphic designer building a website for a center that was doing development work in one of the poorest districts of Uganda. And I was building their site and I saw, oh, all of these subsistence farmers own cell phones. And that amazed me, you know, they didn't have access to clean drinking water or nutrient dense food sources, but they all had mobile phones. And so I decided to go back to school to get my master's to study why these subsistence farmers were you know, wanting to put this investment in cell phones. And while I was there in this really poor food insecure rural district of Uganda, I saw the mobile telecom infrastructure. And I was thinking, okay, there aren't paved roads. Um, there, there isn't any you know, infrastructure. There's no water piping uh, in this town, but there are cell phone towers. 
And so then I got interested in tech policy and the ethics of tech policy. And I've continued that work. I did a postdoc at UC Berkeley at Citrus. I had a faculty advisor also from the College of Engineering where you know, we looked at how do you build new information technology systems uh, that support development and support democracy. So it's been great to be on both sides of building the tools and thinking about their appropriate governance. Fascinating and, and very synergistic, I must say. So what are some of the current projects that you're working on? Yeah, one of the most exciting projects we're working on in the Citrus Policy Lab is um, actually a collaboration with the University of California Office of the President. And this is the UC Presidential Working Group on AI. And the goal for the working group is to help guide the UC system in the procurement, development, implementation, and monitoring of AI-enabled tools. In doing so, we've established a set of UC ethical AI principles uh, to help guide the UC system. But now also with that work, it's important to show how do you operationalize those ethical principles, which I'm certain many of your students have started to grapple with. You can talk about ethics of technology in the healthcare system, but it's another thing to say, well, how do we actually implement those ethics into the process? And so we're leaving that work right now. Our report should be published in August. Um, and I believe this is actually one of the first university-led initiatives where a university has said, you know, we study the societal effects of these technologies, but we should also be certain that we're applying what we're learning to our own efforts. Another project I'd like to highlight is our work with California Department of Technology. And there we are helping to guide the state of California's AI strategy. And we've written a report with recommendations to guide the California AI strategy. Now that report is currently under review at the office of Governor Newsom. Uh, which I'm certain he's got a lot of things piled up on his desk, but as soon as he approves that report, it will be published. And we're also working on, again, operationalizing some of those recommendations in the report. There's a set of ethical principles to guide the state in its own procurement, development, implementation, and monitoring of AI systems that are used across state departments and agencies. And in that work, we're also developing an AI risk assessment framework, which is actually coming up as one of the main models for AI governance, you can see this in the European Commission's AI regulation, which is taking a risk-based approach and other countries have done the same. So we're, we're really at the cutting edge, I think, of thinking through how to appropriately operationalize principles in, in responsible practices. And then another issue that I think is particularly salient for health researchers is our investigation of the effects of nascent data privacy legislation on data access for public interest research. So as many of you probably know, the European Union passed the General Data Protection Regulation now a few years ago. And as a result of that, we actually witnessed platforms become more restrictive in the types of data that they're willing to share with third parties. And this comes in response to lack of clarity on what, it, you know, what protections need to be in place, what does data anonymization or pseudo-anonymization mean in practice? Um, and also it comes in response to the Cambridge Analytica scandal where a researcher gained access to millions of people's uh, data without their approval. And of course, you know, while data privacy and security are critically important, there's also a risk of platforms using that as what we, we call a privacy shield to protect them against sharing data with third parties that could promote greater transparency and accountability. 
Now within the Citrus Policy Lab, a lot of this research is focused on uh, social media platforms and their role in spreading dis and misinformation and inauthentic content being spread on the platform by, by malicious bots. But now in the health context, this also applies uh, where GDPR has had several unintended negative effects on data sharing of public health data. And so in that work, actually, the EU has recently introduced three pieces of legislation as part of its digital strategy. But there are two of the acts in that digital strategy that I think are particularly relevant to the health space and have a high likelihood of strongly affecting data access for health research. And those are the Data Governance Act and the Digital Services Act. The Data Governance Act is intended to support third-party access to public sector data that cannot be made available through traditional open data models. Uh, sometimes the data can't be shared because there's a proprietary nature, it's a public-private partnership with a company, and they can't share the data or there's other privacy issues. And then also the Data Governance Act can allow individuals and companies to share data for altruistic purposes. So people can opt in or companies can opt into sharing their data. And what's really going to be impactful for sharing health data is the establishment of these trusted intermediaries that will serve to collect that data and enable the sharing. Because GDPR, that's where it's really had its harmful effect on sharing of data for especially public health research is around who can share the data, who can access it. And then also I just wanna highlight that in article 31 of the Digital Services Act, it would stipulate that very large online platforms, what the EU calls blocks, they will be compelled to share data for research to ensure that they are adhering to the requirements outlined in the Digital Services Act. And so in that context, I think any research that looks at the spread of dis or misinformation related to health would definitely be covered under that. So I'm hopeful we can gain access to some data to support research. Great. Yeah, you've, you've been busy and there's, there's definitely a lot going on in the field. So you're probably familiar with the trolley problem scenario being used as a way to test people's moral intuitions when presented with different ethical situations. What would you say is the quote unquote trolley problem of our day and age? Yeah, this is a really good question. We talk about the trolley problem a lot, but I was actually thinking, you know what? We kind of have a trolley problem. What's the trolley problem? And let me try to explain what I'm thinking here. So we're in the midst of a transformation in ethical technology development. There have been hundreds of sets of ethical AI principles developed. I think the last time I checked, there are over 160 sets of ethical AI principles. That's a lot of principles. And we're actually trying to work now to operationalize those ethical AI principles in practice, but it's not easy, right? What does transparency mean to you? What does fairness mean to you? What is security? And so just like the trolley problem where the conductor must recognize a philosophical approach to determine their action. So oftentimes you think about utilitarianism as an ethical framework that you might use greatest good for the greatest number of people, right? So you would hit one person instead of five versus deontological where actions are good or bad based on rules, not because of the output, the ends essentially do not justify the means. So within this, I've heard this applied in the context of Google's um, self-driving cars, where it would be programmed to hit the smallest thing. But if you think about that, the smallest thing might be a stroller, right? Terrible, instead of, you know, um, a trash can or something, just because it's size-based. So 
what I'm seeing now is there's no consensus on what philosophical or ethical framework we should pursue. And we're in the midst of a dilemma, one that may never be resolved because it can't, right? We'll always have differing philosophical, ethical viewpoints. And this approach, it's going to become even more difficult because these companies, especially tech companies, they operate multinationally. They're multinational corporations operating within different social, cultural contexts. But I think an important step is recognizing what ethical philosophical framework is being used and communicating that with all stakeholders. That's fascinating. And so you've specialized in a discipline that seeks to understand and manage really one of the most polarizing issues in society today, this ethical use of technology. What would you say is the current state of affairs and what are you finding in your research? Yes, this is a really good question. Of course, this this keeps me working, right? Like the you know ethical considerations of technology. It's really important, but I, I am seeing an increased pushback on the use of AI, where I think sometimes you know we need to consider that AI can bring significant value to promote efficiency, effectiveness, and equity. But there are areas where individuals caution that it's never appropriate to utilize an AI-enabled technology because of the severe risk of infringing human rights. And so I think one example is the rise in uh, moratoria on the use of facial recognition technology. But I think, you know, I'm I'm hopeful because we have seen a, a great rise in the number of researchers who are tackling ethical AI issues. And we are seeing a response from companies to incorporate processes into their development where they are looking at the societal effects and trying to mitigate any harms from the ideation stage through development, through deployment. Okay. And are there any particular industries, governments, or maybe geographic regions that you're finding are quite advanced in regards to the ethical use of technology? That's a good question. I don't know if any jurisdiction is doing well in practice, but I think there are, you know, the European Union is taking the global lead in trying to govern technology in an ethical or trying to support the ethical development and deployment of technology. And their recently released AI regulation is approaching AI oversight from a risk-based perspective. And I think that that's helpful. It's helpful because it helps to kind of raise up these risks, but it's important, I will say that this be done at the ideation stage when you're thinking about the deployment of the technology, not after the deployment of the technology. It's critically important that you do this early on, you identify the risks and you put in the appropriate governance and technical strategies to mitigate those risks. So I do think that the EU is, is really taking a lead on this, but I will say that there is a, a direct spillover effect on the formulation of legislation and regulation in other jurisdictions from the EU. We saw this with the GDPR in the United States, where we have state level laws being enacted that directly near the GDPR. Now, in response to the EU's AI regulation, we've also seen uh, legislation proposed in Congress that is extremely similar to the EU's AI regulation. Amazing. And on top of all of this, you study human rights at the intersection of law, policy, and emerging technologies. In healthcare, we're just beginning to have discussions about things like 
medical liability and, and the use of AI. For example, you know, who would be responsible if an algorithm made a potentially life-threatening diagnosis or treatment recommendation? Is it the machine, the provider, or, or maybe even the programmer that wrote the underlying code? Could you talk a little bit about how organizations should manage this ethical ambiguity when law and policy are often playing catch-up to emerging technologies? Yeah, this is such a tricky question. Who is liable? And one example I want to give, you know, AI-enabled tools are often deployed with an assumption that there is, quote, a human in the loop. So there's a human and an individual helping to make a decision from the output of an AI-enabled system or an automated decision system. So if you look at actually Tesla on autopilot, it requires that a hand still be on the steering wheel. There's some sensors that will actually recognize if a hand is on there. Now people have uh, try to circumvent this with strategically placed uh, water bottles and oranges jammed into the, the steering wheel. But essentially this is signaling that, right, a, a hand is on the wheel. It's assuming that a human would respond if something were to happen, right? So I think there it's passing a little bit of that liability on to the driver saying, well, your hand was supposed to be on the wheel. You were supposed to respond. Now there's examples that I also want to talk about where it's really gone awry where these tools have been deployed and it's unclear who is liable. And I can give two examples really quick. The first one is from Michigan, uh, where the state of Michigan implemented something called the Michigan Integrated Data Automated System, MIDAS algorithm. And what this algorithm sought to do was to streamline the detection of fraudulent claims for unemployment insurance by attempting to optimize the review process, identify factors indicative of fraud and remove human biases. It did not go to plan. It was estimated that nearly 40,000 claims were incorrectly detected by Midas to be fraudulent. And this was largely due to Midas basing its decision on faulty data that held inaccurate information about recipients. The harm from this was terrible for these families. And actually some families received fees over $100,000, which they couldn't pay. It, it was terrible for these families. Now, another example is actually in the UK where a system was used for balancing the payments and the mail system was for postmasters. And there was a fault in the system where it was creating an inaccurate model. It was saying that they were short on funds, even though they really weren't. So this sort of looked like to the entity overseeing the postmasters that, oh, maybe they're skimming some money out of there. They're not accurately posting all of the money that should be coming in. And as a result of this, many postmasters were sent to jail, which is terrible. They were wrongly accused of stealing. And then it came to, you know, it was shown that actually it was a faulty model. The model was inappropriately predicting or calculating this loss or this mismatch in, in the amounts. And as a result of that, now the algorithm that was used was built by a Japanese company called Fujitsu, and they haven't claimed responsibility for this. And it's kind of happening right now where we don't know who's liable for something like this. So actually, we're in the midst of right now figuring out liability. And I think that liability claims are, are going to be a little different for different sectors. And I think it's highly likely that they're going to look at past precedent of 
liability standards within a domain. Got it. Well, let's talk a little bit about algorithmic bias for a moment. What is it and how can organizations design it out of technology? Yeah, so algorithmic bias is um, you know, really the buzzword of the last five years I've been at AI space. And algorithmic bias is where a model perpetuates unfair outcomes. And there are a lot of strategies to identify and mitigate algorithmic bias, but we're in the midst of that development right now. When I teach this area, I think about it through a model that I call the 3D model. I actually just had a conversation with somebody about a week ago that could be the 4D model, and I'll say why we added the other D. But essentially, the 3D model is looking at the data, the design of the model, and then a decision out of it. So you want to look to see, is there any bias in the data that we have collected? Is it actually representative of the group that we're trying to measure? Does it disproportionately represent certain individuals? Then when you're thinking about the model, is the model optimizing variables together that are actually a proxy for race? Is the design of the model disproportionately selecting false positives or false negatives on protected classes? And then when you think about the decision, if you're taking the model, how are you implementing that in practice? And is that fair? Is that biased in any way? Now, the fourth D that we were talking about to add at the beginning is actually determining, we were going to call it. So thinking about determining whether or not an AI-enabled tool is necessary. And I think that adding that fourth D might be especially important, especially if we think about the deployment of AI-enabled tools and systems within the public sector. There is a push to apply it to at-risk and vulnerable populations, and in part because public services tend to collect data mostly from those groups. So it's also thinking about, are we determining to deploy this tool on a group of individuals who we already know are at risk of you know, being uh, biased against or, or facing discrimination? Okay, so how would you recommend organizations actually practice ethics? Yeah, I think that right now we're seeing all entities, all, you know, all stakeholder groups, not just public sector, but also private sector and academia, thinking through how to appropriately integrate ethics into their, their processes. But if we just think about companies, I think it, it's clear that they can't just establish an ethics group that works in isolation in one corner wing of the building but that ethics has to be integrated at all levels of the company, from the C-suite to the intern developers who are coming in during the summer months. It really has to be a part of the culture all the way through, otherwise change will not happen. Yeah, and I completely agree. It really does have to percolate through the entire organization. So where would you say leadership comes into this picture and and what role should leadership play in practicing organizational ethics? Yeah, I think it's it's critical that leaders recognize the value of ethics for the bottom line. We're talking about companies again, you know, there's a quote that that says essentially what's good for society is good for business. I think that's happening a lot more. People are becoming more aware of the impact of, let's just say tech companies, the impact of tech companies on society. And to the extent that they can, 
they're sort of uh, voting with their feet or you know voting with their clicks of where they go or, or their apps or downloads. So I think for those companies, there's a higher expectation of ethical, responsible behavior. And I think that if you don't have buy-in from leadership, the development teams won't prioritize implementing processes to better ensure ethical development of tech. It has to go all the way from the top to the bottom. Right, I, I agree. And you may have actually heard of something called VUCA leadership. VUCA stands for Volatility, Uncertainty, Complexity, and Ambiguity. So with technology evolving so quickly nowadays, how can leaders possibly design technologies that remain ethical despite being influenced by constant change? Yeah, this is definitely a problem with AI-enabled technologies, especially when those technologies are pulling in data live and changing their behavior as a result of the data coming in. So a really quick example, to put Microsoft on blast here a little bit, they developed a chatbot called Tag, and it took like all but a day for people on Twitter to train it to be racist. Not great. So I think that that shows that you can build a system, but you need to have continuous oversight. You have to have somebody checking it, you know. And I understand that doing this all the time, like oversight every day is probably impossible, but there should be an established review process to identify when harms are happening, stopping the use if you can't immediately correct those harms or implementing changes to make sure that harms are not perpetuated. Great, thank you, that, that's very true. So what ethical technology trends are you most excited about with, with so much change all around us? How do you see technology evolving to be more ethical in the future? Yeah, so since I'm at uh, UC Berkeley, I can kind of give my perspective from the university. And I have to say that I am incredibly impressed with our students and their commitment to ethical technology development. We've actually seen some students turn down internships with large tech companies because they didn't agree with their ethics. So I think students are really invested in understanding how technology impacts society and how society impacts technology. And they're really dedicated to understanding and developing strategies to better maximize societal benefit from technology. And because of this, you know, I think the future is going to be pretty good. Uh, I'm, ho I'm hopeful that you know, when we have this generation, holding the reins of big tech companies, they'll, they'll operate responsibly. That's great to hear. And Brandy, we're just about out of time. So any words of wisdom for our listeners? Yeah, I would say one thing I would say is what ethical and responsible tech is showing us is the critical need of diverse perspectives to be at the table at all stages of technology development and deployment. We need to be working together. It's obvious that many of the really terrible, <laughs> negative, harmful effects of technology could have been mitigated if more diverse perspectives were incorporated into you know, the determination stage, determining whether or not to use the technology, the data, you know, collecting the data, the development of the model, and the decision stage. So I would just encourage everybody to see themselves as a critical part of this process of ensuring that we are designing and deploying responsible tech. That's great advice. And thank you so, so much for your time today and 
really for everything you're doing to make technology ethical by design. It's, it's been eye-opening to learn more about your work and you really get a glimpse of where this industry might be going. Yeah, thank you so much, Kevin. Of course, and thank you to our listeners for tuning in to the Six Degrees podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. That's all for today. See you next time. Oh, 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 oh,